because sometimes I've had this, I've sit in an academic council meeting where there's all these academics, we're sitting around, and I'm thinking, if a bomb were to land on the rest of the world and all the people that were left are in this room, like how long could we survive? Like what skills do we have to survive? Like who's going to find out how to dig a well? Who's going to figure out how to grow something or whatever? So when we lose the broad ability to feed ourselves and we just have a few people who run machines, um, I think that's probably not a wise thing. Yes, it was that kind of an interview. Funny, insightful, provocative. My name is Boyan First, and I am the host of Rural Roots, a program that asks what is rural in the 21st century. My guest this week is Dr. Ivan Emke. He is a rural scholar at Memorial University of Newfoundland, and he is based on the university's West Coast campus in the city of Corner Brook. I spoke with Ivan about the changes taking place in rural communities. We also spoke about community radio and his long involvement and experience with that medium, but I'm going to save that part of the conversation for another time. And one day, I promise, I'm going to find a reason to spend an hour talking to Ivan about funerals, his other area of research. For the next 40 minutes, we are going to focus on the changes in rural Canada and the need for new rural-urban alliances. I talked with Ivan in my office at the Harris Centre at Memorial University of Newfoundland in St. John's, and we started our conversation with me asking him to introduce himself. This is what he said. My name is Ivan Emke, and I was born on a mixed farm in uh, Bruce County, Ontario, sandwiched between uh, the mighty Lake Huron and the pristine Georgian Bay, which, until recent years anyways, ships could take on drinking water from the middle of the bay. We were a mixed farm, which is unusual in these days. We raised uh, purebred livestock, Aberdeen Angus cattle, which my father swore by, Oxford sheep, and then Cordell sheep, and then Leicester sheep. He became a little bit more ecumenical in his later life and had other breeds as well. And we showed them at fall fairs throughout southwest, uh, central, northern Ontario. And I used to visit, uh, visit those fairs with him, and it was almost like being in a circus. So in the fall, we would I would get off school, which explains my lack of certain educational qualities, but I'd get off school and we would exhibit at these fairs. And the fairs were always a central piece of the seasonal celebrations of those communities. The uh, schools would all bring their kids to the fair. They'd look at the big pumpkins and uh, they'd ride on the rides and throw up and um, they'd watch the the judging of the sheep and the cattle and everything else. And um, to me, it's very hard to think of living rural and agricultural life without these sorts of memories, the auction sales, the fairs, the moments when people within the rural community came together doing something that related to their livelihood and celebrating uh, together as a as a culture I guess so that's my bias and because I was grown up I grew up in that way and I was uh, trained in that and I really enjoyed it Mm -hmm. so it certainly has in later years probably turned into a bit of a romanticization of that life and partly because those rural fairs have changed One reason why they changed is that people wanted to get bigger midways and fancier things like that. And they didn't want to have them in the fall because people were back in school. And can we really justify taking kids out of school for six hours when these learning objectives they're supposed to be meeting might not be met by finding out where their wool comes from or whatever? 
So they decided to start having them in the summertime. And having a fair in the summertime in mid-August in central Ontario, it's just not the same thing. It's hot. It's dusty. The tomatoes really aren't ready yet to be judged. Um, the farmers are busy in the field, so they don't bring their animals. And so the whole notion of the fall fair has changed in the 30 years, I suppose, since I used to be going to, I mean, it was 40 years or whatever, when I was going to uh, fall fairs. And so it's a bit of a symptom, I suppose, of what's happened at the transitions for rural life. There's some great things that have happened, but there are also some pieces of what gave meaning to my family and my relatives and friends and neighbors growing up on the 10th concession of Brant Township. It gave meaning to us. Those are now gone. But it's interesting that um, compliance with school learning objectives played mm -hmm. this huge role in mm -hmm. changing of the essentially our rural yep. life way. Yep. Mm -hmm. I think there are examples of that. And, and this is why this the shift is not some grand conspiratorial scheme on the part of a small cabal of men meeting in a boardroom somewhere. But it's the sum total of all the small changes that have to be made, whether it be conformity to large school districts, which are not rural-based anymore, but they're usually urban-based. I'm speaking right now from Newfoundland, which has one English school district on the island and one French school district. It used to have, when I first moved here, it had 20-some school districts, English. Other things like insurance rules around community centers where they can't uh, offer or have the same kind of meals that they used to have because of food safety regulations, uh, some of which are uh, put forward by, of all things, Agriculture Canada, which, you know, you wonder, wait a minute, who's listening to who there? Shouldn't you, you know, have a, have a, have a group meeting? But uh, insurance rules too, things around water, around accessibility, which make it very difficult for small communities to keep community centers operating in the way that they used to. So it's a sum total of all these small procedural policy changes made all for, no, I wouldn't, I almost said all for the right reasons, but I'd really have to justify that. I don't know if they're made for the right reasons, but they're all made for reasons not, okay, let's destroy rural life. That wasn't the reason why they made those, but that's sometimes the unintended consequence of what we do. In 2006, Ivan wrote an essay for Newfoundland Quarterly magazine asking whether or not rural life was worth saving. As you have probably realized by now, Ivan is not shy and he is quite comfortable asking provocative questions. In that essay, he wrote about two rural extremes that exist in popular culture the romantic, idyllic rural, and the rural as a backward, stuck-in-its-ways place. I asked him how he felt about that essay ten years later. Our conversation from there quickly progressed to a discussion about the need for new rural-urban alliances and food and environment as a potential glue that can keep the rural and the urban connected. Well, you see, rural is uncomplicated, right? It's simple. It either is this or it's that. When you divide things up into two, you're obviously leaving lots out. But I found that was an interesting kind of, not exactly a dichotomy, but I suppose a continuum. Mm -hmm. The rural is backward. Um, and I must admit that I think I borrowed this from the notion of youth as fun and youth as trouble. Mm 
which is another continuing that in a different area of research they talk about of ways we look at youth. But when we look at youth, or rural, sorry, as, as backward, um, it reflects sometimes that kind of knee-jerk reaction that I have, having grown up and hearing all the jokes about farmers, especially sheep farmers, because we had sheep as well, and I couldn't imagine, anyway, I could never understand those jokes. But, uh, but just the, the sense of kind of not being cosmopolitan and not really quite being part of the world that we were trying to build in Canada in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, so it was part of a reaction to that, this notion that, that there is a backwardness. I found that in Canada it's kind of interesting because, in, and possibly in that article I pointed out as well, that if you look at the major pieces that make us Canada, policy initiatives that make us Can Canadians versus Americans, a lot of these had their roots or they were nurtured in rural communities, not in urban communities. So if you take Medicare, that's a big thing that people say, well, what makes you different from Americans? Well, we have free health care. I mean, there's lots of issues around that. Don't get me wrong. But that, where did that come? It came from Saskatchewan, basically. It was Tommy Douglas. It was a bunch of British doctors came in and they, it was in rural communities and they, they fought it out. And that's, that was not something that happened in the middle of Toronto. I'm sorry, Montreal, but you didn't think of this, you know, or Vancouver. And if you take things like uh, community governance or local governance, if you think of all those rural um, school boards that used to exist, the rural farmers groups, the rural women's institutes, and all of that, which really helped to educate entire generations of people who were geographically dispersed at a time when geography meant even more than it still kind of means today. Um, that the kind of work that they did in building leadership potential and so on was very important, uh, not just in rural areas, but also in creating leaders who went on in politics and in, in uh, uh, other areas, arts and so on, to kind of define us as, as a nation. If you think of the first places where women were elected to office in Canada, they were rural districts. They were really rural um, values that they were playing out and that that became important for us as a nation. If I were to ask you, you know, and you could have a, a contest, take a picture of the soul of Canada. What do you think the picture would be? It might be rural, oddly enough. The heart might be somewhere else, like where people live and where the economic engines throb, mm -hmm. but the soul is really beyond that. And that's people say that's a part of the Canadian identity, this sense of nature and the connection with nature. I know that's really old kind of theory, but people still talk about that. But that, that connection with the land is important. And you see that in other places. If you go to Iceland or places or Ireland or some other communities uh, in the North Atlantic and beyond, that there's a real connection to a piece of land. And it's not a connection to a city, but it's a connection to a piece of land, a piece of territory, and, a, and often a piece that's used for rural ways. So I have nothing wrong with cities. I love cities. I live in cities and so on. And I think that it's, it's a very efficient way for people to live together. I don't think it's necessarily a nurturing way, but it's very efficient and sometimes very nurturing too. But it's all part of a whole system. And what I worry about as rural communities depopulate and so on is at what point will we realize what we have lost when we no longer have population or even sovereignty in territories where there's nobody left living. How important strategically, politically, is it to have 
human presence in these rural yeah. communities. Did we not some years back send some Inuit to an island in the Arctic? I think we've apologized for that since then. But the idea was to maintain sovereignty in that space. And the Arctic is even more contested than it ever was at that point. So the notion of, like if we would have had occupants in, was it Hans Island or whatever, maybe that wouldn't be up, up, up uh, for debate now. But, but I think it's an interesting question and it's not entirely academic, not to use the that's an unfortunate word, but if you think about the northern peninsula in, the, in, in Newfoundland, if you go north of Cowhead, north of Daniels Harbour or whatever, there's, there are a lot of very significant issues, and the questions arise as communities slowly depopulate. Would it be conceivable that people simply move out of that region? And then what happens to 200 kilometers of coastline and landscape and so on and so forth? Like, there is this issue about if, if, if you don't occupy a territory, you have no claim on it in a way that's almost sounds like common law I suppose but really you have no control over what happens in that lots of things could happen in that and what happens in other countries in various nations where you don't control your territories and you don't have your own people living there is somebody else comes in and cuts the wood or takes them the copper or or plunders the Mayan artifacts or whatever and um, so occupation is a major part of sovereignty now, I don't know if the Americans are going to come and plunder Port Saunders or something like that if we don't live there. That's not probably going to happen. But it still raises the question about, well, you know, I sort of wonder, why don't we just give that land away to people who want to live there? Why don't we start? Because we're the only country in the world that's still creating agricultural land. Like, we're, you know, Newfoundland really is, is doing a fair bit of that. And I remember the old homesteading kind of act and so on. And I'm thinking, well, if we, if we aren't going to live there, there's probably people somewhere else who might be interested. Maybe, maybe, there, maybe it's time to rethink the use of rural territory and property. Newfoundland and Labrador has a lot of crown land mm -hmm. that causes some problems in terms of resource extraction and uh, being able to make commitments in the long term so you sustainably for, uh, forest an area because you don't know if you'll have it next year. The total allowable cut is not decided and, you know, and so on forth. Sort of. So you could possibly make an argument that the rural territory that we have, we need new models for how we distribute it among the people. We talk a little bit about the idea of rural as backward. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about the other yes. side, yeah. rural as idyllic. Yeah, yeah. That's a nicer part of it, but it's equally problematic because it isn't entirely accurate. I, I, I can have the rural as idyllic notion, you know, and I enjoy that. I have lots of, lots of my relatives still live, you know, they still farm, and so I enjoy spending lots of time with them and so on, and occasionally even work for brief periods of time with them. Very brief, you know. But but then you're out, you know, you had a great day out in the fields, haying or, you know, chasing cattle around or whatever it is that you're doing, you know, and you go to the local, uh, you know, truck stop and you're having a coffee and then you hear people saying all kinds of weird and stupid things. And you, and you think, oh, man, you know, all the romanticism is gone. So that's the that's rural as backward and rural as idyllic. You can have it in the in the same day. And you kind of all get meshed up. They, they all get meshed up. I prefer to think of rural as being um, a little closer to idyllic, or I romanticize it a bit more. But that's because I see some of this, what we call backwardness, to be not 
ignorance. Uh, sometimes it's not knowledge of the situation. Sometimes it's people who feel like they've not been treated well by a system and that they're kicking back at whatever happens to be the issue of the day. So it's a reaction to a feeling of powerlessness, whatever. And the other piece of that, which, which is which is unfortunate, is sometimes we think that if we can add in a bit of urban, it makes rural better. So if we can get them, if we can just get them internet, it'll be all right, they'll be better, they'll be better off, you know, or whatever. Just get them a little bit of this or that. And, you know, I like the internet. I, it wastes a lot of my time, really. Um, but I think some of the things that are coming back to rural started in, or, you know, from urban, really started in rural anyways. I went to this conference on urban agriculture a couple of years ago in Toronto, downtown Toronto. Beautiful conference. Great, great, great. All these people were talking about growing tomatoes and so on. Can't we get this to be happening elsewhere? You know, it's like they came up with the idea of agriculture. I thought, oh, my God. It was, it was, it was pretty astounding, really, in a way. Now, I don't think they were trying to suggest that we hadn't been growing food in the farms. But the approach that they took was that they had made up, they had, they had discovered something. It's the beautiful thing about converts. It's like <laughs> they're just so emotional about it all. Uh, and, and if we took every little strip of grass in Toronto and every windowsill and grew something on it and every roof, we'd get maybe, I don't know, 10% of the food they need. You know, they're still going to need some farms out there outside. But, but by this whole... I'm not trying to be critical of this food security kind of issue and so on, but the one thing I find about it is it's moving this issue like food security, and it's a very urban population that's moving that forward as if it's their idea and they're sharing it with the rural people, you know, those people out there, out beyond. Whereas, you know, this is something that they kind of have been doing for quite a few years, and they have actually been doing it for you for quite a few years. And maybe there could be alliances that are created because I think food is one of the, I love food as a symbol for how communities come together when they eat together, families come together when they eat together. But also, I think that food would be a good symbol for how rural and urban can come together because they both have to eat. So uh, urban people need to eat and rural people happen to have capacity to feed them. And so one way they can create alliances is to both be working on food security. Just like the environmental movement, I've often wished that there could be an alliance between urban and rural over the environment, that then they wouldn't you know, uh, see the, each other as being opposites or somehow opposed. Or... Ivan says we need new rural-urban alliances and there is an opportunity to build them around the food we eat and the environment we live in. Such alliances, Ivan thinks, are important, desirable, and probably necessary. For those alliances to happen, the rural and the urban have to understand each other in ways that go far beyond the usual stereotypes. Part of the difficulty is that the way in which rural people interact with their environment might be unusual for people who live in a city, who don't live in a natural environment to start with. So they really have no right to complain or whatever. But let's take this as an example. So I'm out in the field with a friend. I'm an urban guy, and then he's a rural guy, let's say. So we have a can of beans over a campfire, and the can then, which he takes, and he buries, he, he, he digs a little hole, and he buries it there. And he says, wait, 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 hold on. That's not environmentally sensitive. You, gotta, you need to take this can back and put it in the garbage. 
And he says, well, why would I do that? So I take a can, I actually take it back, I put it in a plastic bag, I take it to the garbage. What do you think they're going to do with it? They're, they're going to put it in a hole in the ground, right? He said, well, you know, this is a, there's a lot of space here. There's a lot of space. If it's going to decompose, it'll decompose at the same rate in my hole as opposed to in your hole. Uh, and maybe, he says, just to get me, Maybe it would be useful if people buried their garbage right where they used it instead of trucking it somewhere else. You know, God, that's a dig at me, right? You know, because I don't like garbage in my backyard, so I ship it out somewhere else. But that's a different relationship to the environment there. I'm not suggesting we should have cans of pork and beans that we can't recycle. I know there's that and, uh, and so on. But we're speaking from Newfoundland here where I can't recycle a can. So first of all, so there's that different relationship. It's just like when I grew up on a farm, and so we raised animals, and we understood that in order to eat an animal, you need to kill it first. This, is, this is, might come as news to some people who only shop in stores. But the relationship, I mean, there's kind of an interesting psychology about raising animals to be killed for meat. It's kind of like the psychology of hunting a caribou that you, in other contexts, recognize or worship, if you even want to use that language, and then killing it to survive. That whole relationship between the individual and the environment and taking things out of the environment, including taking the life of animals sometimes, and certainly of plants, in order to survive, which is a different way of looking at things than if you live in an urban environment where you never really have to address that. Now, you might at some point in your head, you realize when you're talking about pork, that's probably a pig. Or whatever but honestly you don't you know people don't really think about that and they don't want to know about that and they get frustrated when they hear it you know that this is happening so the relationship you have with the environment is different if you're a subsistence farmer or if you're raising animals for an urban market um, you you end up having a different kind of a relationship with that now there are lots of farmers who care very deeply about their animals uh, no question there are lots of farmers who don't like the pressures that are being placed on them by corporate agriculture, which is an urban thing, by corporate agriculture to mass-produce chicken and fill them with all kinds of hormones and stuff like that and so on. And so the alliance that I could see would be these farmers who are more interested in what I would call more traditional ways of farming. If there could be an alliance between people who want organic and the farmers who also want organic but they're stuck in an economic system where unless they go big with the corporate farmers, they can't get the, the, the loans from Farm Credit Corporation or a bank uh, and, and continue to operate. So that's the kind of alliance that it would be great. And, and there are places where that's starting to happen, community shared agriculture and so on, where you're starting to see a relationship between a producer and a set of consumers where they cut out the middle person there, the middle corporations. And um, everybody feels, feels good about that. Is there a way to create, to recognize the intrinsic value of rootedness in place and the relationship mm. to the world that's different? Hmm. See, now we're talking about the words, worlds of meaning and value. Small v value, not the big V that the economists talk about, you know that really don't 
relate to economics very well because it can't be quantified quite as quite as much. Now, you, you, a couple things there when you talk about place, um, and that sometimes you economically disadvantage yourself because of your connection to place, and I think that's that's a very interesting phenomenon that does occur. Yes. Likewise, with certain activities. So you have people who fish and people who are farmers who just basically get by. Farmers, they make their money when they sell their farm at the end of 50 years of farming. If they're trying to sell it to a child, one of their children, it becomes very problematic. But in many ways, some of these occupations, we rely on people to do this for very little money. And they're very important occupations. There's this term called hobby farmer, which Statistics Canada uses. And I always found that really interesting because many of these hobby farmers are producing some very important products for us. In terms of maple syrup, I think almost all of our maple syrup is produced by hobby farmers. In they're Canada? Called, in Canada. They're called hobby farmers because only a proportion of their income, a smaller proportion, you know, less than 50, comes from the farm itself. Maple syrup is a seasonal thing you know, every few weeks sure. a year uh, and then and then you're done but you know if we didn't have hobbyists who are making this maple syrup we'd have no maple syrup and that's one of the symbols of Canada right it's on our flag um, but we don't have I've never heard somebody say well I'm a I'm a hobby economist like I don't really get paid to do this economic stuff but you know I just do it and I I, I get by or I'm a hobby ac accountant or you know I'm a hobby IT specialist. Well, there might be some of those. Anyway, but, but it's like we've taken certain activities that are pretty central to the reproduction of us as a species. And we've allowed the producer to be so devalued so they're not getting the economic value out of what they're doing. But we think that's okay somehow. Like, that's all right. I mean, a, a corporate lawyer gets, you know, $300 a minute or whatever it is. But the farmer... That's okay. He's just a farmer, after all. Or she's just a farmer. And so, to me, it's, it's a whole kind of... You just have to laugh at it, because otherwise you cry. Because it's a really skewed kind of system that we have. And then, then you get, well, why did that happen? And the, the concentration of power and the rise of agribusiness, agri-foods. I must admit that I don't like the term agri-foods. I much prefer the term agriculture. Growing food is a culture. It's, it's a whole range of values... And relationships, oh, there goes that word again, not just between individuals who grow and produce the food, but between the individuals and the environment in which the food is grown and so on. Agri-foods is, that's like Bay Street stuff. Like that's, I'm, oh, I'm going to get in soybeans now. I'm going to buy some soybeans, you know, futures, and then I'm going to sell them in a few seconds and make some money, you know. So it's again that dichotomy between a globalized urban yeah. view of agri-foods and then localized, tied to a place, by necessity, mm -hmm. agriculture. Mm -hmm. You see, you could argue, I don't know if this is going way over the top sure. or whatever, but <laughs> if we talk about relationships, like the relationship yeah. we have to food, when that loses its authenticity, so to speak, like when we don't know where it comes from and we don't understand under what conditions it is made and we don't wonder every day at the miracle of growth of food and so on, we start to use food in more profane ways. We start to abuse food. We start to eat junk. Um, and maybe it's a symptom of a 
wrong relationship. Jeez, I'm sounding like a missionary. I got a wrong relationship with food. Uh, so I take a, a great deal of comfort from from the movements which started way back, uh, you know, you know, centuries and centuries ago, where people, urban people by and large, then moved into communities and they started growing their food and they understood the value of that activity in terms of coming to peace with the world. And um, just, uh, you know, in the last year or two, I've been reading little bits and pieces of literature on the therapeutic value of gardening and of growing food and so on. And we have a professor here at the university who works on um, mindfulness and growing plants and so on. But just the, the research, you know, which shows that a community garden, while it gives you a few tomatoes and celery and so on and so forth, it also does a couple of other things. It connects you to a bunch of other people who are doing a similar activity uh, related to the environment. So it connects you to the environment as well. But it gives you, there's a therapeutic value. Like mindfulness is all about stopping your mind from going somewhere. It's like mindlessness, really. And breathing and recognizing the breath. And hoeing a row of corn, while well, it might be boring for a while, but it has a similar kind of physical effect on individuals sometimes, or growing things, or uh, um, feeling soil between your fingers. And so that kind of therapeutic value of having a farm, that relationship you have with that food that you create then, I think is important not just in terms of maybe how you eat or whatever, but it's also important in terms of mental health and uh, your own sense of satisfaction in being in this universe, you know. Like I think... I remember uh, reading a thesis, I believe it was, from the 1960s in Newfoundland Labrador, where they took about 12 communities on the West Coast, and they were looking at the amount of food that people were were provisioning themselves, so potatoes, animals, and so on. And the interesting thing to me is that the communities where unemployment was the highest tended to have the least provisioning, self-provisioning. And the communities where employment was the highest had the most self-provisioning. Now, that's counterintuitive. You think if you've got time on your hands, you'll grow a garden, right? If you don't have a lot of money, you'll, you know. But what it means to me, anyways, now maybe I'm reading something into this, but what it meant to me is that when you are in economically difficult situations, when you give up on the future, you don't plant a garden. So if I plant, I mean, especially if I like plant tomatoes in Newfoundland, like that's like... A bit too optimistic. But there's some great green tomato relish recipes here. <laughs> so you can get those you can anyway. pickle green tomatoes. Yeah, you can pickle them, yeah. But I think that relationship then with that land, like growing that garden is a sign, is a symptom, and maybe it's therapeutic as well, but it's a symptom of a belief in the future and a belief in efficacy. Like I can grow some of my own food and so on. And those are the kinds of things that when I live in an urban area, I have, it's much, it's distant. It's more distant. Like, I don't know. I just cut grass I mean we have garden but it's not a huge thing you know and you don't have that same connection so mm-hmm. I consume nature I go to a park I look at it I take pictures of it or whatever I say oh look at that bird over there isn't that pretty uh, so I'm a consumer of nature but I'm not you know a coal producer within nature in the same way that I would be if I had a larger garden or raised some goats if the city would allow me to in your article, actually, uh, is rural life worth living, uh, saving? Is um, you also mentioned that maybe it's time to create a new kind of a social movement that would bring rural issues mm. in the forefront. 
Is that happening? Well, for a while, I was ha- thought it was happening in various places. Like in England, there, there was this rural movement. But that ended up to be a pro-fox hunting movement. <laughs> and so I got derailed. I thought, okay, well, you know, I thought that sounded pretty good for a while. But uh, not that I'm against for, or for fox. I don't particularly care. But I think it's a bit weird. Anyways. Uh, so is it happening? Um, you know, I think it's happening on a small scale certain places. Uh, uh, it's not a social movement in the sense really uh, like the environmental movement that took over or some of the you know, justice movements and so on. I think it, it also is kind of subsumed under other kinds of movements. So if you talk about economic justice movements or, or like even, I suppose, fair trade, mm-hmm. in many ways that provides money for development, including social development within rural communities where that coffee has grown. And that's a part of the principle of f- fair trade. Not only does the individual farmer get paid more so that their family can... can uh, stay there and enjoy their life a bit more but some of the money goes into community projects so the community is building and um and and that i think would be a rural development movement that's probably very positive because the only people who can afford that stuff is urban coffee drinkers well i don't think that's quite true but uh but it is more expensive yes yeah yeah and, uh, and so it's a positive thing. And, it, it, you know, it takes a long time for these changes to be made. So fair trade coffee, it's not unusual if you have people who say, well, I just drink fair trade coffee. Yeah. What are some of the challenges you see for the rural today? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've often thought that there's a kind of a poor self-concept or self-image for rural. Um, again, being sort of a poor second cousin, you know, the... The jokes about country bumpkins and you know city slickers, usually the city slicker wins out, you know, or is you know comes out on top. And I think there's kind of a defeatist psychology sometimes in rural areas. It's about like like I live in in I mentioned in Cornerbrook, which is an ind- a one a single industry town. It was it's not really so much anymore, but there is a psychology there that is different than a town that would have been created by diverse economic interests. I would argue. And that's part of the problem even today when that one industry is not the main economic driver for the community, but it is the culture of that community. It's like Newfoundland is, uh, I've often said, it's like the economy is maybe 10% the fishery, but the culture is about 70% the fishery. You know? And so it takes a long time for that, for that to shift. So in rural areas, you know, that, that kind of stereotype that they have about being backward it's, it's taking a long time to, to to kick off, I think. I think there are real problems in terms of geography, in terms of access to services. But, you know, the, that's we're working on that. And the other thing is, there's some interesting research on, you know, well, how advantageous is it to be within 30 seconds of a dentist? <laughs> you know, I, would, I prefer to be a little further than that from a dentist myself, but... The things that have made our lives longer, you and I, than our relatives who were living 100 years ago, are things like clean water, cleaner water, better food, uh, better uh, ability to balance work and leisure so we are able to be mentally balanced. We have support in terms of health care and so on. That's what makes our lives longer. 
longer. And you could argue that the things that made rural people's lives longer were things like being out in the fresh air, working, um, being active, and so on. You were probably better off to live in a rural area if you had good water and good food and, you know, and so on. So I come from a long line, and my wife comes from a long line of people who basically lived on farms all their lives, and they lived into their 80s, you know. And, and um, there really was very little illness, despite the fact that they had no access to health care. Towards the end, our conversation turned a bit speculative. We wondered what would happen if we turned stereotypical rural-urban relationships on their head. What if we prioritized rural as a measure of a success? Here is the last bit of my conversation with Dr. Ivan Emke. Maybe we should judge the success of urban areas on rural terms. Mm-hmm. Um, what would that look like? Access, well, view sheds would be one thing, you know, not just a park, but an actual view shed without a building in it, like a, you know, whatever. Um, To be able to go anywhere in the county or whatever, and, and people would know who you were. To have you know thick community like that. To actually know who your neighbors are. You see, I've often found it's interesting. We talk about rural as being uh, questions about being sustainable or not. And my concern is that urban communities are not sustainable. I mean, there's no way they can survive without rural. I mean, that's the, that's the, it. Really comes down to that, basically. Like, I'm sorry, folks, living in a city, and I, you know, like, you can't feed yourself. I'm sorry. doesn't matter how many tomato plants you put on the windowsill. Basil's great, but you're not going to, you know, humans cannot live by basil alone. says that somewhere. Uh, you're not going to get the minerals for your little computer chips, those rare earth minerals that you're going to need for your cell phones. You're not, you know, all these things. You have no chance of surviving. And the only way you can survive, cities, is you put the thumb under rural and make sure they give you the resources for almost nothing. And if you get them for almost nothing, you'll be okay. But if you let rural start to ask for a fair return, like fair trade here on their labor and their activity, you might have a problem. Because the problem is urban Canada is that rural can say, fair enough, we just won't send you any of our stuff. Now, fortunately, your corporations and your stockholders and dividend holders have infiltrated into so many of the agribusiness, agri-foods companies, that you'll probably be able to, under armed guard, extract (laughs) the wheat and the little pigs from them for a period of time. But this is part of the, it's, it's part of this whole, when you start thinking like that, you start to realize like, well, this is pretty skewed, isn't it, Ivan? And then you realize, well, maybe this is kind of the way it is. Like, how is it that these big cities, which you need immense amounts of surplus, how is it that they keep getting this surplus for almost nothing? We have this, we have a cheap food policy in Canada and in the United States. So we spend less percentage of our disposable income on food than most countries. Really? Yes. United States has a really cheap food policy. And if they actually paid, because, you know, the U.S. government pays their farmers not to grow and all this kind of stuff, and they keep the, the prices artificially high. If they actually paid for the cost of their food, it would be a shock. Now, it's hard for us right now. We're seeing cauliflower in the store for $7 a head. That's 
getting close to the actual cost of that cauliflower because we're growing it in the middle of a California desert in a drought and we're shipping it around to us and so on and so forth. But we are astounded by that. Like we don't want to see that. And, and I, I agree. I'd, I'd like to get cheap food too, but I have to realize at some point, you know, um, this is not going to work in the long term. The cheap food policy won't work in the long term. It might work for 100 years, uh, but that's going to be it. Like, how much longer can we actually get our vegetables out of California? I mean, when you see the, the aquifer going down and down and down, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to be alarmist here or David Suzuki, pull a David Suzuki on you or something like that. But uh, you have to start to wonder, like, uh, okay, how are we going to maintain these cities? How are they going to get drinking water and so on and so forth? So at some point, cities have to realize, okay, we're not really sustainable, so how do we make alliances with rural? Right now, they've made alliances by buying it out. You know, the Cargill corporations of the world, the Monsantos and so on, not to pick on them or whatever, but they're large corporations that have big tentacles in, in rural areas. And as long as they continue to buy out small farmers and so on, small producers... There might be the illusion of protection from scarcity, food scarcity, and so on. It can't go on forever. Thank you for listening to Rural Roots. My name is Boyan Fierst, and I'm the host of this program. My day job is at the Leslie Harris Center of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland in St. John's. This show is produced in collaboration between the Harris Center, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership, bringing together rural scholars and policymakers in Canada and abroad. This week, I spoke with Dr. Ivan Emke, a rural scholar at Memorial University of Newfoundland in Corner Brook. Ivan studies ways in which rural communities change, connections between rural and urban, rural communications, but also funeral practices. He is very involved with rural community radio all across the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, and international. I have provided some resources to Ivan's work on our website, ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's all one word, rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. If you have any questions about the show, you can email me from the website. If you listened to Rural Roots on your campus or community radio, please let them know if you liked the show. If you listen to the podcast version of the show, Feel free to encourage your local radio station to get in touch if they are interested in broadcasting any of the episodes. The show is available to community and campus radio stations free of charge. It is also available through the National Community and Campus Radio Association Program Exchange. That's all for today. You just listened to Rural Roots, a show that asks what is rural in the 21st century. Thanks for listening and I hope you join us next week. To subscribe to the podcast, visit ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's all one word, rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. Stay in touch. Mm-hmm.